We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on local now, channel 525. This is the Chris DeGall Show podcast. Okay, guys, let's just rip. And Chris DeGall. Chris DeGall. Chris, thanks for being with me tonight. Chris Stegall. I'm joined now by Chris Stegall. Now. He puts the broad in broadband. It's Chris DeGaulle. The Chris DeGaulle Podcast is presented by USMedicalPlan.com. Save big money monthly and get better health coverage at USMedicalPlan.com. Hey, welcome into this uh, special added bonus edition of the Chris DeGaulle Show Podcast. This is a supplement to our Thursday show because I know some of you who are listeners regularly to the podcast Maybe you're Philadelphia or uh, close to Philadelphia, and you know the name Angelo Cataldi, who has been a successful sports talk host, morning drive talk host, number one in Philadelphia for like 30 years. He's just recently retired, and he's written a book about his career and his life. A lot of you don't know him, uh, aren't from the Philadelphia area proper, so I understand that some of you may not particularly find it interesting, but I will promise you it's an interesting conversation. If you like sports, if you like the business of broadcasting and those things interest you, he's an interesting guy. It's a fun conversation whether you know Angelo or not, I think, but if you do, you'll certainly want to hear this added bonus Thursday a little Christmas gift conversation. Glad you're with us. He is a broadcasting legend in this town. There is no way you've lived in Philadelphia for any length of time and you don't know the name Angelo Cataldi. And he has uh, now that he's in retirement, he has written a book chronicling his time and his career here called Loud How a Shy Nerd Came to Philadelphia and Turned Up the Volume in the Most Passionate Sports City in America The Great Angelo Cataldi Angelo, it's an honor to have you on the show my man. Merry Christmas to you. Well, the honor's right back, Chris. It's uh, we go back a ways, and uh, I'm thrilled to get on with you. Uh, we we have never really had a conversation, although we have been in radio together a very long time. One of my favorite moments with you—not that you would remember it because you've had so many—but one of mine was uh, broadcasting alongside you guys at WIP during the Super Bowl parade, but also uh, being with you when the NFL draft came to Philadelphia. Not not too shortly before that. Um, it, it, it was fun to do a show while watching you guys across the way doing a show. That was, that was great fun for me because I know how much the city thinks of you. Yeah, I was surprised they ever gave us a draft, Chris, because of what we did in 1999 when we went to New York and booed <laughs> Donovan McNabb. I thought that we were on some, uh, I thought we were on some band list somewhere <laughs> until they finally showed up that year. <laughs> and uh, it was, it was great to have them there. That, the crowd went nuts. Oh, that was still, I think, the best draft that they sent out to another city. I'm torn because uh, I could take this interview in a couple of different ways. As a as an industry professional, I'm I've got a thousand questions for you, and then as a sports enthusiast and football fan, I, I've got a lot of questions for you. So I'll try to thread the needle and do a little of both. I have to ask you first. As a broadcaster, doing mornings as long as you've done it, this is the question I've always wanted to ask and never got the chance to do it because I've done mornings most of my career too. My understanding is your workflow was always to bed diligently early. Like I heard in the six o'clock hour every night to get up very, very early and go in. Is that true? 
Absolutely 100% true. I couldn't nap. I, I just, I, and I really needed the eight hours to then go on and be fresh for four live. So uh, I went to bed. I was asleep by 6.30 and up by 2.30. Okay, so Then I caught up on all the games. The, yeah, I didn't see any games live except Eagle night games. Those would be the only exception. That's exactly my next question. I wondered how in the world did you go to sleep knowing you've got these games that you got to comment on first thing in the morning in the evening? Well, I was, you develop a system. You know, like I literally could do a Sixers game in about 20 minutes. Um, we weren't talking flyers that much, so I would just get highlights for them. Uh, Phillies, there's 162 of them. In baseball, there's three or four moments that you only really have to see. <laughs> but football, especially in Philadelphia, you almost have to experience it in the moment because so many people have so many different impressions. There's a whole different level of intensity in Philadelphia for fans watching the Eagles. And that's the one exception I couldn't make. When the Eagle game was on, I was watching it live, no matter when it was. Oh, you did stay up. If it was a Sunday night, Monday night game, you'd stay up for that. Yep. Okay. Yes, I would. And I would pay the price, <laughs> as would my family, for the remainder of that week. <laughs> now, that was my next question. On a personal note, if you don't mind my intruding, uh, you having done that for so many years and keeping that schedule, uh, and again, I just know this, I would assume you missed out on a great deal of family time going to bed so early for so many years. You're on a great topic right now, Chris, because that's exactly what I did. I And, and I made a conscious decision, the wrong decision, to prioritize my career over my family. So I did not experience a lot of the things a father should experience with his kids. I, my first marriage broke up a few years after I went into radio because my focus was entirely on radio. And, and it's something I'm dealing with. I, I'm actually dealing with it now um, in therapy. When I, when I retired and really wrote this book and looked back on it, went, you know, what I do right, what I do wrong? I went, well, all I did wrong was the most important thing, always being there for your family. And um, I'm dealing with it now. I mean, it, I think a lot of people, no matter what their job is, um, make that decision. You know, where am I going to put my focus? And I just got so obsessed with doing that show every day and do it as hard and as well as I could that everything else fell by the wayside. I'm going to give you some grace here, and I don't mean to speak for you, but I, I'll, I'll say through my own perspective, I believe what you were doing. And I know you did it at a high level, and for for it, you've been pretty candid that you've you've been paid very well for it as well. I, I bet you felt like you were doing the right thing to provide the best life for your family. Isn't that what you thought? Exactly, exactly right. And and this is part of my upbringing. I I, I grew up in a traditional Italian family where my father's job was to bring home the bacon. He when my father would come home, he was a toolmaker. And he was a tool maker for 48 years at his brother's tool making shop. And when he would come home at five o'clock, the, the dinner would be on the table. And then like 530, that was his time. He didn't really do much with the kids. He, he had provided for his family and now he had recreational time. And he was in bowling leagues. He got involved in politics and all that stuff. And that was my model. You know? But what, what I admired was my son, who grew up in the same model with me, 
went in a whole different direction and was far more committed and, and a far better father to his twin sons than I was uh, to mine. And I'm, you know, I'm trying to make up for it now, Chris. The thing about retirement, people say, well, what are you going to do now? And you now it became clear to me while writing this book that what I'm going to do now is try to make up for the time I missed and be there for my grandkids and do whatever I can for my family because I wasn't there enough when I was supposed to be. Do you? May I be personal, Angela? Your book, by the way, is called Loud, How, to shy, how a Shy Nerd Came to Philadelphia. This is all in the book. Okay, and turned up the it's volume. the book. I have no secrets, Chris. <laughs> no secrets. So it's called Loud. Go get it. For, uh, this is a great Christmas gift, for uh, particularly for the broadcast slash sports lover in Philadelphia. Angelo, I have to ask, uh, because you mentioned your divorce, was it the job? Was it the job that was primarily responsible for the yeah. divorce? It, it was kind of a domino effect. My my kids were not dealing well with my absence, and they were creating problems that led to um, my wife um, getting frustrated, and then things just going downhill. It was was more my responsibility than hers. But we were, you know, when we made the move from Providence to Philadelphia, we were kind of on the same page in that. We're going to the big leagues now. And my whole focus was, wow, now I got to be even more locked in. This is my big test. Yes. I'm in I'm in a big city. I'm not in a little place like Providence, Rhode Island. And um, so I guess she was on board until she saw the ramifications of it. You know, that when you when you commit to your career being above everything else, um, your other spouse takes takes on extra responsibility and sometimes that's too much to ask for them do, do, and um it was you know it, it's the hours too Chris. Yeah. these hours make it impossible to live a normal life yeah no it, it's 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 a physically taxing thing i hate to whine about it because you know i know yeah. there are guys that are breaking concrete out there but it it is a it's a weird body <laughs> schedule uh, uh, what about your kids today what do they say to you today about it or have you talked much with them about it in retrospect looking oh back? yeah i I've, I've had a lot of conversations with both of them about it. And, and, um, my son, um, I think understands it. And, and I've tried to understand from him how he was able to break this, you know, this rhythm that my family has my father, uh, his job was his number one thing. Uh, my job was my number one thing. And my son's job is his kids. Number one, but he's a very successful financial analyst. He's got his own company. He's doing great. And he was able to juggle it better. And I said, how did you, how did you do it? And um, I'm not sure. I, I just, I think my, I was the opposite of a role model. He knew that he never wanted to be, to follow me in, into radio or do anything that was performative. You know, he wanted to be a behind the scenes guy. So I think he was wired a little bit different. And he realized, well, I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to do it a totally different way. And I have nothing but admiration for him that he was able to do it. But you have a great relationship with your kids today, do you not? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Sure I do. So it's not like they but resent you. should have been closer. No, no, they do not resent me. And someday there'll be an inheritance that might make up for this. <laughs> I don't know. I was going to say, they I bet made they, a lot of money in radio. I bet right? they have a nice shore you know? home to think about it, don't you suppose, on, during the summers? Right on, right on the beach, right on the beach. So you're right, Chris, there's, there's, you know, there's some give and some take. There you go. But that stuff, the material stuff is, is as important as, um, as being there. And I missed a lot of games and I, I should have been there more than I was. 
Angelo, your uh, show, and I would get to catch it every now and again if I were <clears throat> maybe, you know, your final hour, I would get to catch it. What was hypnotic about it was maybe even if you weren't particularly interested in the subject matter at the time, it was unavoidable that the the cadre of people assembled around you in that studio you felt like you were listening to a bunch of people talking around a drink at the bar or around the coffee shop. It, it, you, it, it was a, a warmth and a sincerity of people that sounded like they liked one another that was just, it was intoxicating. It's very hard to replicate, if possible at all to replicate. It's, it's magic, really. Chris, I've done a lot of these in the last few weeks for the book tour, and that's the most perceptive comment anyone has made. And I'll tell you exactly why. Um, my first day as a real full-time host at WIP, this is after I had been a newspaper guy and had no experience. I get called in and, uh, my boss, uh, explains to me that I am no longer doing journalism. I am now doing entertainment. So start being entertaining because you weren't on your first day. <laughs> right. And then, and, and from there he said, and here's the way I want you to picture your show. Your show is basically the guy on the corner stool at the local tavern. And he is leading the discussion with the other patrons about what's going on in sports that day. And there should be by play. You should be on the hottest topics and it should be informal and it should be combustible. And the fact in, in all these years, no one's ever used the illusion you just used, which was the model for what our show was. Our show was the corner tavern with a bunch of people who had a couple who were all there. And then you had all the callers. They were the ones who had more than a couple. <laughs> the, 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 call, the callers, like, who knew how long they had been there. But the bottom line of it is that was the vibe, exactly the vibe. And you're right that I could, I mean, this was not by design that I managed to find people to surround me who were so good at giving it and taking it back and forth. It was just, it was luck. It was pure luck that we had that kind of chemistry. And it is to their credit, your colleagues who all understood, people don't know this about this business, but when you do sh ensemble shows, if people don't understand their roles, it's a disaster. But when yeah. people do understand their roles, it's like a symphony, isn't it? 100%. All right, let me give you an example with my, my co-host for 31 of the years, Al Morganti. The only reason we got into radio, Chris, was because Al conned Tom Brookshire into giving us an hourly show, part-time show for the people at the Enquirer, because they had just gone to a sports format and they didn't have enough sports broadcasters to fill 24 hours. So he cons them into it on a Friday. On a Monday, the very first time we appear on WIP, Al's the host and I'm the sidekick mm. and it evolved to the point where by the time I went there full time and Al followed right after that, I was the host and Al was the sidekick and he did it without complaint. He did it without any problems. When the show was over, all the big decisions were not made by me. He was still the brains of the operation. I was just the voice that talked the most. I set the agenda. I got there earlier. I did those things. But he gave up that spotlight. Rhea Hughes knew exactly what her role was and played it to a T. 
our, pro our producer, Joe Wechter, he was firing great lines into the headsets of all of us the whole time. All of that, you got to understand, none of, I mean, I didn't know a damn thing about radio, and Al knew very little more than I did. And we managed to put a show together that fit perfectly. That was not by design. Believe me, Chris, it was a mis it was an a, a lucky, happy accident. Well, it's like every great film or or uh, television show when you read or hear that other people were about to be cast in a role that you now know is this great ensemble, and you can't imagine anybody else playing that role. I mean, what you described with you and Al, I say you just can't imagine the dynamic not being what you and Al had for so many years, but. It, it started out differently, but Al, like you, smart enough to understand what worked and what didn't. It was about the show first, not ego. It's about what made well, the show sound best. There's one last ingredient here that's maybe even as important or more important than what I've said so far. We brought in, after Brookshire left in 1992, we brought in a professional, a very established, talented talk show host, Tony Bruno. And Tony Bruno had a very strong record as a main host. And he came in with two guys that knew nothing about radio. And he knew how to find a role that was perfect. He be, I'll tell you, Chris, he taught us radio for three years. Yes. He told us how to create stunts, get buzz on the streets, all the things that you would not normally know unless you grew up in the, in the medium. And he did all that without ever wanting to take the next step. Hey, I know more than you guys. I'm the main guy. No, he, he folded his talent into our role, which, again, that's luck. I mean, how many guys in the radio business have an ego they're, they're willing to sublimate yes. for the benefit of the show? <laughs> You've been around radio a while. There aren't a lot of those guys. No, no it's nothing but ego generally, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But he did it. And it's like, and he, it, for three years, he taught us. And then he went to ESPN radio full time, but he left behind a lot of knowledge we didn't have before he got there. And he still has a lot of love for you and this town and, and the medium uh, still uh -huh. to this day. Uh, Angelo, you, uh, you did something that few people can do. And, and I know that when I was hired uh, to come to Philadelphia from Kansas City, it was the thing that everybody said to me over and over and over again. Oh, they'll eat you alive. They'll eat you alive. You're not from there. They'll eat you alive. And it was the most intimidating thing, and it was every bit true. I'm pleased to say uh, we figured out a way to make it work. But um, how did you manage? What was your secret sauce to being a, a Northeasterner making your way here? How did it work? Um, I had a big advantage. Um, I went to Columbia Graduate School of Journalism, and I did not come here as a radio guy. I came here as a sports reporter and I already had the mentality of the media here to hold sports figures uh, accountable uh, in a lot of cities, including where I grew up, Providence, uh, Boston area, uh, a lot of hero worship, a lot of uh, trying to befriend the people you're covering. That wasn't in my playbook. I, I asked tough questions. I alienated people. I was attacked. In, in locker rooms physically. I mean, I really upset people. And I and I did it with big names. I, I had major feuds with Larry Bird, with um, uh, Bobby Clark. Uh, I covered those teams and those guys 
while they were superstars, they were also really hard to deal with when you were trying to get answers. to what, Was that to make an, if I may interrupt you there, was that to make a name for no. yourself or you just thought, well, that's part of the gimmick. That's what I'm going to no. have to do. Or that's your style. No. First day at Columbia, I'm with my uh, advisor and he says to me, what do you want to do with your career? And I said, I really like to get into sports. And I, he was horrified <laughs> and he went, oh my God. No, all right, look, I, I'm hoping I can talk you out of it, but if I can't, there's two promises you need to make me. One is you're going to cover sports the way they cover the White House, the way they cover the way they cover City Hall. You're going to you're not going to ingratiate yourself to these people. You're going to ask the hard questions. You're going to be a journalist. And number two, under no circumstances in the year that you're here, are you just breathe a word to anyone that you want to do sports? Because they will immediately <laughs> say, well, this guy's not a serious journalist. Why the hell do we bring him here? And I followed it. I followed that template my whole career. Even when I was uh, in the entertainment business at WIP, when I did an interview, the interview was journalistic in nature. I would ask those hard questions and sometimes alienate the people I was talking to. You managed to build a reputation as, yes, a, a tough interview. You were what, I, what always amazed me is WIP had become the flagship station for the Eagles and the Phillies. But, boy, if they stunk up the place the night before, uh, you were not afraid to come in and just go blast away on them. And yet there would be the manager or the coach talking to you about it. And I know it didn't always go well, but that were, were, you, were you ever mindful of the partnership like, or were you ever told – Angelo, like you, you cannot beat up on them this hard or, or else. Did that ever happen? I, a couple of times it happened, but never to the point where you have to do this or. Uh, it wasn't my security that was on the line. But in 1999, after we booed McNabb at the draft, Jeff Lurie, the owner of the Eagles, sent a, a, a letter to Paul Tagliabue, the uh, NFL commissioner, basically saying these people in Philadelphia are not playing by our rules. We're business partners, but they're killing us. And keep that in mind, you know, the next time CBS Network comes along, because CBS Radio owned us, CBS Network comes along to renew their TV deal. They were making an attempt in the late 90s to put heat on me to back off. But I was smart enough to know one thing. I had one currency, and that was my opinion. And I did not, Chris, I did not trade it for anything. Never under any, if I had an opinion, I said it. There were times in those 90s when we were a little out of control and we were personally attacking people, which we eventually learned not to do so much. But in those years, yeah, there was a feeling that you were tempting fate. But when the next negotiation, even after all those frustrations, when the next negotiation came for the radio rights to the teams, the, the, as long as you bid more than anyone else, they took the money. <laughs> there are these great philosophical stands they took, just folded up the moment the check was bigger than someone else's. And again, that, you know, that shouldn't shock anyone who knows how the NFL works, but the money always spoke loudest. I, I could keep you forever. I'm, I'm not going to, but I, I don't know what kind of time you have. So I want to pause here to ask, are you okay on time or do you need to go soon? Chris, I am retired. <laughs> I have nothing but time. 
Okay, good, because I got lots more. So here we go. Settle in. <laughs> so my, my, my next question is, you came up through an era, the 90s in particular, because that was when I was really starting to study uh, broadcasting intently, you know, through high school and college and that was still the era of Howard Stern and wacky shock jock pranks and Wing Bowl was at its zenith. That was a different era of broadcasting. And I don't know if we became more litigious, more culturally sensitive. How do you interpret what happened and how we pivoted away from what you said used to be more personal, maybe a lot more gratuitous? What, what changed? Did you mention it? Did you feel it? Did you sense it? Did you discuss it? Oh, it's, it's fascinating because... A lot of what we were doing, keeping in mind that we had very little experience in radio, the, the, the basic rules were being set by Howard Stern. Yeah. Howard Stern would be pushing that line, pushing that envelope every day he was on and getting spectacular ratings because of it. And that had an effect on all of us. And, and I would look back now on it and go, well, why did I call the guy that? Why did I do that? Then I would remember, well, that was when Howard Stern was saying he hoped that the, the chairman of the FCC got cancer. Yeah, I mean, he was he was way beyond anything that we were doing. So we thought all that territory in front of it was open season for us. We could use all of it. So it had a big effect. Then he went to um, satellite radio and his effect started to, you know, dwindle. And then you saw a lot more political correctness, a lot. I mean, the wing bowl evolved. The wing bowl was a period that started when Stern was at its peak and it evolved into more and more politically incorrect until we got to maybe after the Eagles um, made it, I guess, uh, in the Super Bowl in 05. And then it started to go the other way because people weren't reacting as well to the same thing. We had women running around in bikinis. We had a lot of uh, inappropriate behavior in the biggest arena in the city. And um, they just, it's, it's odd the way tastes change. Well, local we media, I mean, I, I, year year. you and I were working yeah. alongside one another then, and I vividly recall yeah. that local media started lobbing bombs at, at your radio station yes. and your show. And that, that was new too, right? But they, you know, and this is where, this is maybe as big a reason as any for my survival over 33 years. No matter who was the management of, of our station, including a man, an owner who hated us, Ed <laughs> Snyder, who owned the Flyers simultaneously, they did not ever lay the law down. They didn't come in and say, if you guys don't clean this up, we're, we're cleaning the house. No. Why didn't they? Biggest reason. Yeah. We were getting numbers. We were making money for the station. That was number one. But number two, they understood that if you have a talk show, in Philadelphia especially, the last thing you can do is basically handcuff the people on the air and ask them to pull a punch. Ask them not to be as open and honest and honestly obnoxious as they need to be <laughs> to bond with the crowd. And that's, they always got it. I, you know, the management, I had not, I have stuff in this book, Chris, that will blow your mind. I have a clause in this, in my contract, 1995, that my program director could not speak to me. Right? That's in there. I actually reprinted 
I oh, reprinted man. the clause. Oh, I love right? it. So don't make. Uh, so if the, if these people are listening to me now, you know, saying nice things about them, they would be shocked. But the truth is, when we got down to it, when there was pressure on to back us off, they didn't make us do it. And that's one of the reasons WIP has been a success for so long and why we were successful. I, I, I know you share this, and everybody who does this shares this in common. You, you don't like being managed. It's just yep, it, you just true. hate being managed, don't you? And it's, it's yep. hard to explain to people who are accustomed to a lot of collaboration and boardroom meetings and let's meet to meet and let's meet at this time. And I, we don't live that way. And so when somebody comes in and tries to manage you, you, you instantly bristle. At least I do. Oh, it, it, with me, it was over the line. It was crazy. We would, a boss would call me in and he would question um, a content decision. Oh. You know, why did you talk about this instead of this? Right. <laughs> and I would go, and, and, you know, this was 20, 25 years into it. And I would go, I'm sorry, how many years have you been involved in this thing? And then, and, and, and then they would go, you know, seven, six, five. I, I, well, I'm 22 years. I think I know what I'm doing, you know? And, and, and then if it got real bad, Chris, and he, and he went, well, listen, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm going to have to really put my foot down. You, you're going to have to get off that thing. I'm going to go. Who's making more money here? <laughs> do, you think that, do you think that you're, um, uh, who's more valuable to the organization? If I make this a full-blown crisis, are you comfortable that you who are making less than half what I'm making are going to be okay here? Because I wouldn't want to risk your job. But I would. Do, I played those cards. I was not fun to be around. Oh, I understand. Believe me when I say it. Uh, now, were but, you but always? I, I was exercising. I was exercising my right to to do the show that I was paid to do. That's all I was asking for. But but then it got to a point in your career where you you'd been around and doing it so long that it was the total opposite. It was I'm going to go now, and they kept saying, "Oh, oh, please, just one more year." Yeah. I mean, that's a weird yeah. moment, right? When you're not adversarial, but now they're begging you to stay. It was it was a weird moment, and um, they did at the very end say, "We need one more year." They were bringing in a new program director, Rod Lakin, who, by the way, is probably the boss I got along the best with. He was really great. Uh, with me and with all the talent at WIP. And um, so they said, all right, um, just tell me what you need. We're going to try to give you everything you want. So I'm sitting down. I'm going, wow, I got, they just gave me the keys to the city. I could have anything I want. So I said, you know what, let me try. I, I'm talking to my agent, that same agent, by the way, who got me the clause that the boss couldn't talk to me. And he said, you know what? I don't know that they do it that much anymore, but Doctors used to take Wednesdays off. Why don't you take every Wednesday off? <laughs> All right, yeah, let's put that on the list. Like we'll, Carson. We'll try that. I love it. I did. Uh, no, I did a Carson clause in there, too. I said, I'm going to need a vacation every month. So I want 12 weeks vacation. <laughs> and then we got to the end, right? By the way, a lot of this stuff, like I ended up taking my normal four or five. I didn't take 12, but I just wanted it in there. I wanted to see what I could do. And they had done one thing, Chris, that really ticked me off. They had, during the COVID pandemic, they had um, let go 
um, one of my favorite people at WIP, the marketing director, Cindy Webster. Cindy Webster, a wonderful woman. So I woman. said, yes. oh, absolutely. So, Chris, I went, and I'll only come back if you rehire Cindy. Well, that's, <laughs> I asked for a lot of money. I asked for the Wednesdays. Or I asked, the thing they balked at was having to admit they had made a mistake by getting rid of her. And I went, well, okay, then um, I'll be, I'll be leaving at the end of the year. I'm not staying. And they, they had to cave to that too. Well, this speaks so to your, probably, this, if I may, this speaks to your character yeah. and, and I, because Cindy's a, a great friend of mine as well. And she took good care of every radio station, ours too. Absolutely. The woman yeah. just, she took care of every one of us, like our mother. And, and then, you yeah. know, when layoffs came around, she was one that they let go after decades of service. And, and this speaks to your character. Uh, they said, we'll give you the moon to stay. And you said, well, bring her back. That's the first order, order of business. But that requires humility from the people that just laid her off, right? <laughs> Maybe. Uh, Chris, that is a very kind um, interpretation of what happened. More likely, although I love Cindy to death, it would do. I mean, she's working on the book tour with me. I love her. I think it was just me being an 800-pound gorilla and getting to throw my weight around. Well, I thought it was very decent guess. of you. I've never, I've never heard anybody say, "I won't stay if you don't bring someone back." I, I thought that was yeah. really impressive. Sincerely, um, I'll pivot well, a little bit. You, I, I literally, I could keep you all day, <clears throat> but let me pivot a little bit to the business of sports, and then I'll just have you back, and we'll do this again someday if you're willing. Um, Absolutely. Your uh, your arch nemesis, I had always been led to understand, was Andy Reid. Is that true? Is he was he the biggest thorn yes. in your professional side all your career here? 100 percent 114 years of lies yes he is the worst <laughs> now what makes him so bad because as you know uh, in kansas city he's well thought of because he's winning right now yeah for the most part he's winning right now because he has a quarterback who's making the big moves in the big spot yeah patrick mahomes is so good he's andy reed proof all right <laughs> andy reed had 14 chances to win a super bowl in philadelphia and was 0 for 14. That's how I do it. I don't care that you went to the NFC Championship game five times, and I don't care that you made it to the Super Bowl once. You didn't win. You didn't give this city the ultimate thrill, the parade. So I hold that against you. And in those 14 years, you program yourself like a robot and never felt enough respect for those fans filling every seat in every game you ever coached in this city to answer the questions honestly without having to attack a player or whatever. That guy went into robot mode every single uh, press conference. Uh, I'll start with the injuries. Uh, it was like, a, <laughs> honestly, they're, they're talking about using AI now. He did it 20 years ago. Here. He was a he was a robot, and, and he never answered anything. He's, he's just... And I'm watching what he says now in KC. It's the same. Exactly. Act it is all the same. Years. Yeah. I, here's how I value you ultimately. Number one, did you win? Number two, were you honest with the fans because they deserve that? And the guy that followed him, not immediately, but eventually, Doug Peterson mm. checked every box, Chris. He, he won a Super Bowl here. He was bold. He did things like the city that embodied the spirit of Philadelphia. And he, I, I had him on every single show after every game. He would 
acknowledged the mistakes he made during the game. He was completely honest and open about things. Nobody died as a result of it. Nobody's feelings were hurt. He proved you can do it in this city. We just never took the time to care enough to do it. There was a and weird. That's why. Yeah. Doug Peterson's my hero, and Andy Reid's my enemy for life. Well, now that you've answered the Doug Peterson's your hero for for life, were you disappointed in the Eagles for letting him go? Or did that surprise you? Yeah, you were. It it it. In retrospect, it doesn't surprise me because now I can see the mo there, which was not the mo when Reid was here, and the mo now it with the Eagles are we will only hire people who will do our bidding. And um, you saw it as recently as last week when they suddenly changed the defensive coordinator. Um, The coach had come out on Tuesday and said, no, no, he's not. Sean Desai will be calling the the defensive plays. And then we find out on Sunday that he's not, that he has been toppled Monday night. Matt Patricia's calling the plays. That was not Nick Sirianni's decision. That was a decision made either by the owner or the GM or both. That has been going on. Even in the time when Peterson was here, when Peterson first came here, he had to go along with it because he had never been a head coach and this was his opportunity. When he won the Super Bowl, he started to assert his authority and he said, I want to hire this guy as my uh, offensive coordinator. I want my assistants to be people I name, not you. And then they said, there's the door. And, And so Nick Sirianni is a yes man. And the people under him are yes men too by one level below the ownership is basically calling the shots and if people don't see that and don't understand that they're closing their eyes to the facts. so to be That's angry going on. to be to celebrate too much or to be too angry at nick sirianni would be a mistake is your point yeah he's he's a figurehead and um he would resent that i'm saying that but it's a fact and and that's what he had to do. So now when they they won a super, they they got to the Super Bowl last year. They almost won it and lost both coordinators. If you really were committed to taking that Super Bowl roster and winning it the next year, you would not put in position as an offensive and defensive coordinator two people who had absolutely no track record of success in those positions. You would not do that. You would go out and find veterans who were successful and were available. A guy like Vic Fangio, who ended up, I believe, was in Miami. They didn't do that. They went with younger guys. Why? Because the younger guys have to do what the owner tells them to do. It's basically, right now, I think it's a recipe for disaster. We're seeing it unfold right now with the Eagles um, hitting this horrible period they're in. And um, I, I, I point the finger first and foremost at the ownership. I arrived in town smack in the middle of the 2010 run, just post Phillies uh, World Series win in 08, and they were still consistently making the postseason. That was a lot of fun. I'd never seen baseball like that. I'd never seen a city so electric. But also what I noticed was right across the parking lot at that time, there seemed to be this real uh, tension between the Phillies and the Eagles that doesn't, I guess, exist now. But at the time, I was trying to figure out the dynamic, this uh, behemoth of a Phillies team that was really firing on all cylinders for the most part and the Eagles who were floundering has that have you seen the relationships between the major teams fluctuate like that over the years and how they all play nice or not in the city together it it wasn't it's not a fluctuation it was really just one man and uh, the man I uh, despised the most in the 33 years I was on WIP 
the former president of the Eagles, Joe Banner. Oh, all right. More all than read it was Joe Banner. What Joe Banner thought that, um, you know, not that they ever won a championship when he was here because they won after he left. But Joe Banner was a guy who just alienated everyone. And he thought he was the big guy in the city. So when the Flyers went to him, the right facility for an outdoor hockey game is a football stadium because it's oval and it's the seating is still pretty much the same as it would be in an arena. And the Flyers went to uh, Joe Banner to get the outdoor game set up at the link. And he was Joe Banner. He asked for ridiculous amounts of money and all that. And they ended up having to configure it oddly at the uh, Citizens Bank Park. Joe Banner but you could ask anyone who owned a franchise in the 15 or 16 years that Joe was, was running things, maybe even longer than that. And you, they would tell you that he was the source of the problem. Mm. So now, now you got to figure this. This is a great scene in my book. So I'm in the hospital awaiting surgery for a, um, I was getting resection. I had diverticulitis and the morning that they had finally, I'd been in a hospital like a week ready for the inflammation to go down that the surgeon comes in and he's writing all over my chest where they're going to do the incisions and stuff. And I get a call from Rhea Hughes, like around 7.30. I'm going in for surgery along 8.30. And she says, are you sitting down? I go, I'm lying down. I'm in the hospital. <laughs> and she goes, she goes, Joe Banner just got the boot. He's, got, he's leaving the Eagles. Uh, I'm going in. They're ready to put the, the uh, anesthetic in my, my, my IV, Chris. And I go, get me on right now. No. And I got all this writing all over my thing. And, and I'm in a hospital bed awaiting surgery that could conceivably end my life. And I go, get me on right now. I got to rip them one last time. And I just went on there and I gloated for 15 minutes. Thank God I was singing Ding Dong the Witch is Dead. You know, I was and and uh the, the fact of the matter is I at, when they put that they give you this drug just before you go on that makes you feel so great. I didn't need that drug. I already <laughs> felt that great. Uh, well, listen, Angelo, I uh, I'll I'll close by asking your favorite broadcast moment. Uh, that that's got to be tough in thirty three years. Or if you have a couple, I mean, what, what were the ch was it the championships, or was uh, was it oh, something I, else? I mean, it was. Uh, I got to meet my boyhood idol, uh, Will Chamberlain. Um, I I got to see some of the greatest. Uh, I got to meet great people like Brian Dawkins. Uh, Allen Iverson was the most exciting player I ever saw. But you said it. Um, it wasn't a day. It wasn't a moment. It was a month, maybe six weeks after the Eagles won the Super Bowl in early 2018. Um, it was it, the sociologists should have been here to do studies <laughs> on, on what a championship does to the psyche of a city. Yes, because everybody was on cloud nine. Everybody was so happy for so long. Our station was built on the 
animosity of the fan. And for six weeks, all they did was speak love. <laughs> they loved everyone. They did. Oh, it was just, and it was like, wow, this is what a championship does. And um, that was it. Th- those, those weeks right there. I always wanted to, you know, I was, I had been there a long time. I've been there like 28 years or so before the Eagles won a championship. And I always went, well, that will be the ultimate. And it even exceeded my wildest imagination. It was just so great. And, and that's what I'll take away the most. The moment when they won it and the weeks that followed, it was just the greatest thing I've ever witnessed. I have a guess that you don't really miss waking up and doing the show. That's my guess. You're, you're just <laughs> fine to sleep in. You're over it. Let me put it this way. We uh, did this interview at nine o'clock and it was pushing my schedule forward a bit. <laughs> I, sometimes, sometimes I will sleep. I will sleep until nine o'clock now. I will. Here's the thing. Though. I'll wake up when I used to wake up two thirty, quarter three. And I'll look at the clock and I'll go, oh, oh yeah, I'm yeah. retired now. <laughs> Roll over and go back to sleep. It's a great feeling. You're right. No, those days are over for me, and um, I, I don't miss that one bit. Well, I tell you, my friend, I just I, I admire you tremendously. What you achieved in a, in a city like this at the highest of high levels that you did is is something every one of us has to take our head off and salute you for. And it's all chronicled in this brand-new book called Loud, How a Shy Nerd Came to Philadelphia and Turned Up the Volume in the Most Passionate Sports City in America. His name is Angelo Cataldi. This would make a perfect Christmas gift for the sports and broadcasting fan in Philly and anywhere else. Angelo, it's been a real pleasure to spend so much time. Thank you for being so generous with all your time. Oh, it's uh, it's my uh, pleasure, Chris. And if people, I can still get you the book in time if you go to my website, AngeloCatali.com, and I will personalize it. And I have no rules on that. If you would like me to say something profane about the Cowboys, <laughs> I will happily do it. But if you go to the website, I will guarantee you we will get it to you before Christmas. And Chris, thank you so much. It was a tremendous interview, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you, my friend. Merry Christmas. The Chris DeGall Show Podcast.